Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be chatting to Lizzie Stewart about her life in comics and her new book, Walking Distance, from Avery Hill Publishing. But first, in lieu of a regular news section, which seems a bit pointless at the moment, given the fact that everything's in kind of flux. Instead, we'd like to just take an opportunity to remind you that, obviously, local comic shops will be struggling at this particular moment. A lot of them are closed to the public, not receiving new comics. But our operating mail order services will be selling things like gift certificates online, selling merch online. So if you get a chance and if you have the opportunity to help those shops out while they're struggling, it'd be great just because it then means there's a a greater chance of them still being there for us in a few months' time. And now here's some suggestions on some other comics podcasts that you might want to take the time to enjoy. Need another podcast all about comic topics, reviews, and just general chit-chat? Then join David Robertson, Fernando Pons, Mike Sadakat, Giuseppe Lambertino, and me, Tom Stewart, at That Comic Smell. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes, and on Twitter and Instagram at That Comic Smell. Pull up a chair and join us. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore. As you see this gradual rehabilitation of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, it's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Oh, we've had an email asking if we wanted to do an advert for the Avery Hill podcast. Oh, that's nice of them. Does that mean we can't swear? Yeah, pretty much. So, no words like... Or... And definitely no... I like Avery Hill comics. Yeah, they're nice. Uh, we're the Awesome Comics Pod. You can find us at awesomecomics.podbean.com or on iTunes. And as the Awesome Comics Podcast... And buy a copy of our awesome comic anthology at www.awesomecomicpod.bigcartel.com. Oh, that was very professional, wasn't it? I knew that'd go all right. Oh, Jesus. And now our chat with Lizzie. Hello, Lizzie. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, just to um, open up and talk about your work, from my perspective, I got to know your work while I was working at Gosh, and you would supply us with self-published comics. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a bit like I was sliding them <laughs> in the black market supply of um, self-published You were dropping them off and then police dogs were coming in shortly afterwards and sort of like finding them tucked away in all the corners and everything. Yeah, I think that's, I suppose that's what I did and still do. Yeah, absolutely. Usually when there's a gap between kind of freelance work um, I'll use it as an opportunity to, to make a little zine or a comic just to remind myself that it can be fun to do drawing, I suppose. Yeah, and I guess you have, like, absolute freedom at that point, don't you? Like, it can be anything you want it to be. Yes, which is um, often a very kind of a very delicious prospect when you're working, doing kind of a lot of client work or working with a big editorial team to only have to answer to yourself and your own 
mad whims or whatever is is much easier. And what was it that first got you into like producing comics in that way, sort of self-publishing and and selling into places? I don't know how I ended up doing comics specifically, but the zines definitely came from when I was in Edinburgh. There was this amazing bookshop called Analog Books in the centre of Edinburgh, and it was a design bookshop that sold zines and prints and kind of illustration books. It had a few graphic novels, and it was run by this really great couple, Russell and Julie, who they were really encouraging of my work while I was still a student. I think I met them in my second year, and they were like, oh, if you ever want to sell some some zines or something and I had no idea what that meant really Um, and obviously like most people spent the first six months of knowing about zines wondering whether I was meant to be saying zines or zines which is a rite of passage that we all must go through. Yeah so I started making little kind of photocopied ones of zines for them because they were nice people and I wanted to to please them I suppose Um, and then it kind of grew from there. I think then I found out about kind of fairs and festivals and other shops where you could sell little booklets and stuff like that. And it kind of, once I got used to making kind of photocopied zines that were collections of illustrations, then I was started experimenting with adding narrative and, and it kind of grew into, it kind of grew from, from a, a kind of a way of making some extra cash off illustration into a way of telling stories, I suppose. But it probably is all out of that one shot and that those two people just being like, yeah, go on, give it a go, which is probably what most people need. No, I think that's a really interesting sort of dynamic, though, because obviously, from from my point of view in GOSH, the large majority of submissions we got were people who, you know, if anything, we were like oversubscribed and people would, you know, you'd have to sort of pick and choose when you could buy from people because of the limited space you have. So uh, the idea of almost being able to sort of canvas for work uh, sounds brilliant, really interesting. Yeah, they were like with analog in particular, which now doesn't exist because as with most cities in the UK, the rent on the shop in the city centre went up and obviously a design bookshop couldn't sustain it, which is a really heartbreaking thing that this shop was kind of a hub for illustration and design, not only in Edinburgh, but in Scotland. And it had kind of an international rep- reputation because it stocked loads of interesting artists kind of from America and Europe and they would come over and do little exhibitions in the back room and there was a real community based around the shop and it was it was really special and I think people who worked in Edinburgh in the early mid 2000s will remember the shop very fondly and I think for me it was like it was a genuine catalyst to have someone say yeah, we'd like to stock your stuff. And I think there were many other artists in Edinburgh for whom that was true as well. And it must be the same with Gosh, that just having that kind of nudge of someone saying, yeah, we'll take it, we like it, is such a boost to your confidence, especially if you're kind of making this mad stuff alone in the room and not really talking to anyone, which is very much what I was doing. Yeah, I met a guy at um, Thought Bubble last year who remembered me from Gosh, because obviously I've left a while ago now. And um, he explained to me, he said, you bought my first ever thing that I sold into a shop. And he said, I've still got the receipt from that. Uh, And he goes, and I keep it above my desk because it was like a, a, a massively. And, you know, for me, it's odd. You know, you're just it's just a functional thing you have to do and you dash it off. And and I, I, I said to him, I feel terrible. I've probably done like a horrible, scrawly uh, signature. If I'd known it was going to be immortalised, I'd taken a bit more care over it. But it was really interesting to sort of 
have someone talk about the space like that. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, working at Gosh, you sort of know its history and, and place in the, the sort of mm. uh, London comic scene. But it was really interesting where it's clearly a, a huge thing for this guy to sort of have someone sort of go, yes, I will give you money for this thing that you made. He was like, I couldn't get over it. And I, I remembered his work as well. And I was like, it was good. It was good stuff. And he was like, yeah, you just don't know. And I guess it is that thing from a creative point of view. You don't know and you kind of need, you know, one other person at least to sort of say, yes, this is a thing. Yeah. And then the added bonus of them maybe giving you some cash for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, firm sale from gosh yeah. as well. So. <laughs> I'm legitimate. I'm a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was things like that that kind of nudged me along and allowed that kind of self-publishing thing to become like quite a massive part of the way that I work. And I still sort of often would prefer to self-publish something than hand it over to a publisher just because I still I enjoy those relationships that you get to have with shops and I enjoy um, all the control. I think the control is is probably the bit I enjoy the most. Well, one of the things that always struck me about your, your work buying it in was the sort of attention to detail in terms of the production and design of it. Like it always seemed sort of meticulously put together, which obviously is you being able to control or have more control over every aspect of the production than you would with a larger project through uh, a more complex uh, organisation. Yeah. And also realising quite early on that I'm really, really bad at assembling most things but particularly folding and printing and cutting and trimming things neatly. So the point where I realised I could probably fork out a tiny bit of extra cash and have someone else do it properly was was a game changer and means that a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, your zines always look so look so professional. I'm like, it's because they're unprofessional. Somebody um, <laughs> <laughs> else doesn't fool me because I, I, I can't staple something on a straight line to save my life. But that's interesting as well, though, isn't it? It's almost like, you know, that's that decision to sort of hand off that part of the process is a creative decision, isn't it? It's, it's you sort of going, I want this to look a certain way. I'm not confident or happy that I can do that or is going to completely do your head in trying to do that. So just like, hand it off to someone else to get it done the way that's going to please you. Yeah, it's also, it was also a point, the point at which I decided to to stop wrestling with the stapler was also the point where i was like you know what you're actually fine at you're fine at this maybe even semi good at this so also the spending the money to get it printed the way that i actually wanted it and there were a few that i really invested in that i got kind of litho printed and, and stuff that was also quite a big thing of, of just i suppose investing in my own work in that way which i hadn't up to that point done before i would also always be doing it on the, the cheapest way possible because you know as an art student well, that's the other thing as well, where you were talking about uh, analog as a as a space. Like, was there a sense of community around the place? Did you meet other sort of comic creators or other artists that sort of you you'd be able to sort of chat to and compare notes on? Yeah, yeah, we were like obviously. I think everyone has a very romantic attachment to the first kind of scene that they were a part of, and it's sometimes hard to view what you're currently in when you're looking back to how magical it was in the past. But um, there was definitely uh, a group that were kind of constantly in and out of the shop and we did exhibitions and there were group shows that we were all a part of. And then there were artists like Tom Gould and Simone Le uh, Leah who did 
an exhibition that I saw in my first year at university that was a real catalyst for me being like, oh, I'm an illustrator. This is what I'm going to be. And Nigel Peake, who does kind of architecture and art, very beautiful art artist books that um, was also really inspiring. And he, he'd be around a lot. And then people like uh, Shea Finch, Shayla Finch, who ran a website that sold prints in the US who worked with all my favourite artists and she came over and was doing a show and was like, oh, we could do a print with you. And that was, it was just this kind of constant flow of really inspiring, really interesting people. Um, and then like a younger generation of us who were kind of just getting involved. So there was Eleni Calacotti who's done, she did the, all the Reeds covers for uh, Avery Hill and is a spectacular editorial illustrator there was um robbie porter who was is now more of a designer there was des burrows who's now like a book writer designer polymath in in the u.s there was like all of these people who were just starting mixing with people who were more established and it was it was really great and i you know that continues to exist in different forms in my life and then in london in comics um there's there's always there's always scenes but it is hard not to look back and be like oh it was so lovely it's also it's lovely as, as well i think you know you're saying that you know analog books didn't survive in a sort of physical form but you know being able to sort of talk about it in that way there's clearly a legacy to the place that that lives on and and still sees new work coming out of it as a result of it existing yeah definitely and i think that's and that's certainly true in in kind of comic scenes, I guess, across the country, that they're all born out of one location where people meet. And I know, obviously, for a lot of people in London, that's gosh, but there'll be places all across the UK where people kind of get to mix with the people who are three years ahead of them, five years ahead of them. And that's such an incredible catalyst for for kind of propelling you forward and, and figuring out who you want to be and where you want to be. You know, since then, you have uh, developed a career as, you know, a commercial illustrator and as a creator of uh, children's books as well. So many sorts of strings to your bow. Yeah, I mean, mostly, most of the strings are, are, are pictures. Um, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't do, you know, I can't do much else. Um it's not a very tuneful violin. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've been really lucky so far and I'm happy to have migrated. I was doing all sorts of illustration for the first kind of five, six years after graduating and it, it became picture books in, I think, 2016, 17. I can't remember. And that felt like a really a nice time to move across into doing something more narrative. And it means also that now I do much less editorial stuff, which I'm not very good at anyway. But also just to give you, I think, a bit more credit than you're happy to give yourself there in terms of uh, the, the visual aspects of your work, like uh, your comics, uh, as well as looking uh, tremendous, also read incredibly well. And in terms of the children's books that you've put together, you have written and drawn them. So, you know, you're at least a double threat in the world of yeah. uh, children's books. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I really, like, I do enjoy writing, and certainly with making comics, it's equally as important to me that they read how I want them to, and the storytelling works in a specific way. And in picture books, 
there's more of a kind of traditional structure that you've got to wrestle with and, you know, page counts and stuff like that. The writing is is becoming increasingly important to me on a par with the image making, which is which is strange, I suppose. I, I think I still feel quite reticent to acknowledge the fact that I am technically definitely an author. But um, <laughs> it was easier to lean on the illustration side because I've got a, like a proven track, re- track record with that. I do have the faith to face the facts that I've definitely written a few books now. <laughs> also, as well, just to sort of clarify the the whole idea of you as an author your debut children's book there's a tiger in the garden did win the waterstones children's book prize yeah so that's not a bad debut is it that's not a bad it wasn't, it wasn't the worst night of my life no. <laughs> So not only do you have to accept that you're uh, an author, you're an award-winning author. I'm sorry to tell you, this is quite a revelation. (laughs) Um, How was that experience? That must have been incredibly exciting, particularly for, you know, your your, your debut in that field. Yeah, it was was amazing and and ridiculous and still feels like a very weird, weird thing to have happened to, yeah, to have had to, like to have gone to an award ceremony and yeah got a trophy and had to make a speech and um had to be coherent and and things um yeah it was it was great and it's definitely meant meant that the book traveled much further than i ever thought it would and means that people obviously then keep an eye out for your next book and it's all yeah it was amazing yeah, and of, of all the prizes to win, I mean, Waterstones, their sort of footprint on the UK book scene is massive, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that one is sort of the books that win are put forward, the books that are nominated are put forward by the booksellers. So it's nice to know that it comes from the people who are t- selling the books and talking with parents and children about what they want to read. And it, it's nice that it's not just some kind of, anonymous committee somewhere it was people that are involved with books every day all day well i worked at waterstones myself a few years ago and can tell you from experience that children's book selling is almost sort of culturally distinct from the rest of the shop do you know there is a special sort of atmosphere to the space and they you know i mean booksellers generally are passionate but i do think children's booksellers are almost like another level up in terms of being sort of evangelical about the work that they yeah. they love, which is great, you know, and particularly, you know, you're trying to sort of pass that enthusiasm on to children. So you can't be sort of reticent and sort of like, yeah, it's okay. I don't mind it. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I just read this. Thought it was okay. Whereas like, I, I, you know, I worked mostly in the fiction section and you could sort of get away a bit more with being uh, a little more removed about, things in terms of recommendations whereas like you know obviously for kids the more energy you can put into your recommendation the more they're going to take out of the whole experience yeah i think as far as i've experienced children's booksellers take their jobs like seriously but in in the best way yeah i've been very lucky to be involved in the world of children's books well i noticed in your most recent book and i haven't read it i've only seen the cover but even from that it looked like there was a cameo from peanut ah the second book yes so um there's three now the second one features eleni my um previous housemate fellow illustrator um her dog peanut who i lived with for some years who is i mean she's gonna loot she's gonna be delighted that peanut's getting a shout out peanut is probably the preeminent 
dog on the on the London comic scene. Like I can't think of another dog that has the same sort of impact. It, and this is even before you know being uh, before knowing it was they were immortalised in prints. You know this is well, just yeah. so she she does feature in my second picture book, Jane of Jupiter, as as a key character. I've I've definitely um kind of bumped up her. <laughs> Her personality, which is <laughs> something a little more desirable, because she is foul as a dog. I mean, we love her, but she's awful. But well, we met her a few times in Gosh, and she seemed fine. Like fine, fine at best. <laughs> I'm gonna get into so much trouble. <laughs> we all know she's horrible. <laughs> and yet, as I say, undoubted star quality. So yeah, such twinkly eyes. <laughs> Just in, in, in terms, again, of your uh, sort of wider work, um, as well as uh, obviously the publishing and commercial illustration, you teach as well. Mm, yeah, I've been teaching at Goldsmiths for, oh God, seven, nearly eight years. And then I kind of roam around like some sort of beast on the moors looking for um, other places to teach. No, I um, do kind of guest lecturing all over the shop, but um, I am in, in Goldsmiths with some regularity. I always think in terms of like being uh, a working illustrator and teaching at the same time, how do you find that impacts on your work? Sort of, do you find yourself interrogating your own processes in a sort of ongoing way to sort of think about how you're going to talk about them to other people and explain ideas to other people? Yeah, I think because there's like so the two the two different versions of teaching that I do, I do a kind of regular teaching on a, a course where there's an illustration strand to the course. So I'm on a weekly basis setting projects and kind of helping students with their with their work and solving whatever issues they have with like, oh, how would I make it look like this or which is great for I suppose kind of way <laughs> just kind of keeping me sharp and like problem solving and figuring out oh if you mix this with this it would look this way but if you did it with these materials on this paper it would look that way and I, that's really good for kind of yeah for for making sure I'm thinking about like different angles to come at things from and then with the kind of teaching that you do where you go to a university for a day or two days where you kind of present yourself in a way and your work I think I found that really interesting just reviewing the way that I've approached it, because I've been doing that, you know, I do four or five a year, probably since about two, one or two years after I graduated, it, I kind of went straight into it somehow. And it's been really interesting to look at the different things that I've kind of prioritised in that in that process over the 10 years of working as an illustrator. So it really forces you to kind of think of what your priorities are at any given moment and acknowledge that they change. And obviously now when I go and speak to students, I'm 10 years on from where they are as students right now in their second or third years. And my experience is sort of technically irrelevant to them in that I graduated pre-Instagram. Twitter wasn't really doing anything functional for anyone's careers. If it existed, I don't know if it did. Blogspot was still, you know, the biggest way of promoting your work and and I graduated into a landscape that is so completely different even just 10 years ago um to what they will graduate into that the the kind of facts of my career are sort of irrelevant so it's more just an opportunity to talk about what work feels like for you which um 
maybe they're intensely bored by, but I really enjoy kind of just interrogating the subject and, and thinking about how I've approached it over, over 10 years and um, that there's no particular correct path, certainly not anymore. So I really enjoy it. I do, I do really enjoy it. In terms of the presentation itself, like, is it something where you had an initial, not so much script, but outline of what you wanted to talk about and an accompanying PowerPoint? And then that gets adapted each time, or do you have different versions where you just like put one to one side and then start again from the bottom, sort of thing? Sort of. I think um, the first time I did it, I definitely like I had a, a PDF presentation and I definitely had a script. And I think by the third time I did a lecture, I was like, there's no point planning what you're going to say. You should just wing it um, because you'll be far more constructive that way. And I don't know if that's true. I think that's potentially just a way of shirking some planning. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, I suppose now it's a matter of like looking at the presentation the, a couple of days before taking out the really the images that are making you cringe at that moment and swapping them for something else but that does change as well which i'm finding fascinating there's stuff in my current kind of lecture presentation that i would have been violently ill at the thought of showing to people a few years ago and it's funny how kind of cyclical your response to your own work is that it kind of goes from being the best thing to the worst thing to something you're like oh there's actually something really interesting going on maybe in a few years it'll go back to being the worst thing again which I also I like that I get to kind of go go through that process with some regularity through teaching of reassessing my own career. That is interesting because it's almost like the teaching then forces you to re-examine your work and sort of that leads to that cyclical differing judgment. Whereas what you tend to hear more from creative people away from that sort of process is they'll tend to sort of draw a line under older work and sort of go, oh, no, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of, particularly, again, in fiction, a lot of authors that will sort of disavow early work and won't sort of talk about it or promote it or, you know, are not pleased if it's sort of brought up in front of them. And it's, I think it's interesting that perhaps if they were sort of almost forced to face that work again, they, they would find something interesting and valuable in it. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I, in every interview I ever do, somehow I always come back to Zadie Smith. <laughs> and here, so Zadie Smith. Queen um, of my heart, light of my life, Zadie Smith. Um, I remember listening. There's a the like BBC Book Club podcast, and she is. It's it must be every author their worst nightmare of sitting in a room full of people who've read your first book. So they're doing about I don't know when this was, maybe five or six years ago. They were reading White Teeth, which obviously came out in right at the tail end of the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. I can't remember. It's a long time ago. And for her, it's a really long time ago. She was so young when she wrote this book and she's sort of forced to listen to people saying how much they love it and how they, this things resonate. And she has to respond to that. And she's like a very smart, capable, white person. And so is and is very kind towards people's responses. She never tells them, well, you know, I don't agree with that bit anymore. I don't like that. I hate this book or or any of that. She's very charitable towards 
their feelings about the book but you can also tell from it that she's like yeah but this is the first iteration of a thing that I've got on to do many more of and I I think revisiting things after a long amount of time you can find that kind of charitable thing towards yourself towards people who like that work I have to remind myself that there's still there's images that I made when I was 21 22 that still have a life on the internet because that's how the internet works and i still get emails about how how much people are responding to these pictures that i am like that is a horrendous eyesore <laughs> and i hate it. but i'm forced to kind of be be gracious and and acknowledge that there must be something there and i think in in going back through work for for teaching it kind of allows me to remind myself of what was there, even in its early, messy, can't use Photoshop yet form. And that it's a good way of being slightly kinder to myself, maybe. No, uh, I say uh, very interesting, the idea of sort of living with your work in that way. And, uh, and as I say, in a distinct way where a lot of people make a very definite decision not, not to do that. So that sort of brings us up to walking distance your book through avery hill publishing it's a, a fascinating piece obviously one of the things that i really enjoyed about reading it was a sort of tension within where it's clearly deeply personal and you seem almost at pains to sort of deny any sort of claim to universality or you know you you're very clearly you're speaking for yourself in in this piece and yet i found it really sort of enjoyable in terms of you know as as a piece to sort of to to almost read alongside you it's hard kind of wrestling with the with the fact that i'm i am inclined towards making quite personal work but have no wish to be i don't know but i don't really want to it's it's um it's it's tricky and to refer to another author i saw um Rachel Cusk talk uh, at the end of last year, and she wrote a trilogy of, of novels, um, Outline, Transit, and Kudos, about this one character in the kind of a series of conversations. And she's published an essay collection recently called Coventry. And she's phenomenally intelligent. I'm going to kind of paraphrase and probably 100% misunderstand what she was saying for my own ends. But she sort of says, is, was trying to say something that was kind of, that she, as a writer, she can only write her own experience because that's all she knows. But at the same time, she knows that that's kind of not really necessary or relevant. But by being by being hyper specific, this is only my experience, mine alone. It's my like it's the experience of one human being by being that specific. Perhaps it opens out into something more universal by virtue of it being acknowledged that it it's just her. Yeah, it's a singular vision. So rather than reading into it, trying to recognise yourself in it, it's a case of you, you, you're almost you're looking outwards through the piece. That, that's the, the sort of the, the, the way it felt to me. It wasn't a case of me, obviously, you know, reading it as a man who doesn't live in uh, a big city now there was you know there, it's a completely different energy but that's i think one of the really interesting things about art isn't it the fact that you do sort of read about and, and look at and listen to other people's experiences and you know it's not all about 
necessarily finding resonance in that in your own life, but, you know, recognising that other people have thoughts and ideas and experiences that can still be of interest to you. Yeah, yeah, hopefully that's how people feel. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's the hope for humanity, that people uh, are feeling that way. Um, yeah, I suppose it, I kind of, it was actually, I originally planned to self-publish it in with the idea of it being something I could print a hundred copies of and then it would be gone and I'd never have to think about it again. So um, <laughs> via Avery Hill, it's now gained a worrying amount of permanence. Um, but it is, it's personal, but it's not, I hope not to, I don't know, it's very personal. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I found it very interesting just in terms of like look, looking at it as part of your, your sort of larger body of work. You know, a, a, a lot of your earlier self-published comics, I found, tend to be more driven towards dialogue. So it's two people sort of exploring their own relationship through um, conversation, whereas this is obviously styled much more as an essay. But obviously then there's the visual aspects as well, which sort of allow you to emphasise certain things and have the, the words and images play play off each other. I just wondered how deliberate that was to sort of, rather than framing this, this exploration through more conventional narrative, it, it, the decision to sort of turn it into, as I say, more like an essay. Yeah. So I think as a writer, I can do two things and it is, and they are separate. I can do dialogue separate to like prose and I can do prose separate to dialogue. But if I mash them together, I make a terrible mess. So I, it sort of never crossed my mind that it would be a narrative thing because I suppose partially because perhaps I've already done, I think maybe I'm always telling the same stories anyway about what the world feels like if you are, I mean, specifically me, but perhaps more broadly, a, a young-ish woman in a city or a suburb. So maybe it was it was just approaching the same theme in a in a different way. But I did find that in in making it, when I got stuck writing, I could draw, and maybe the point would become clearer through the drawing that I made, and then. When I was running out of images, I could write and it kind of happened with both parts kind of bouncing off each other or responding to each other um, in a way that I found really interesting. And I'm definitely interested to explore that more in the future, how text and image can play, I guess, play together to be super corny in a way that isn't maybe necessarily a comic, but isn't a picture book or a piece of, of straight prose, I suppose. I, I, yeah, it was it was an interesting process. Yeah, that's really interesting as well, what you're talking about there in terms of the momentum of the project. Like, it's almost like you, it, it, it's almost like block proof or stuck proof. Like, if you do get stuck a little bit, you've got another aspect to move on to that's still keyed into the project. So you're not sort of cheating by moving away to something else you're still sort of building this piece like as an, as an illustrator the thing that you're thinking about all the time is whether your image you know the difference between an illustration and a piece of decorative art is that an illustration should be say communicating something there should be you know you have to decipher it a bit and get get something informative or entertaining or whatever from it 
So as an illustrator, I'm always, or most of the time, trying to think about how to communicate a thing without words using pictures. And there were definitely points whilst putting this together where I'd be trying to come up with an image that went with a section text and thinking, no, that's that's not saying quite the thing that you mean. And it really allowed or encouraged me to kind of really boil down what I was trying to say, which is useful then in writing just because I'm <laughs> very prone to kind of rambling or kind of wandering around a point, just kind of circulate, circulating the, the edge of it and never quite finding where it is, much like this one right now. So, yeah, I think for me, I've, um, maybe it, it proved productive and there were there are bits where I think the text and the image are sort of working kind of, they're very balanced. There are other bits in it where I'm like, oh, I definitely just was kind of bashing something because <laughs> I, I made it very quickly. It's kind of a month and a half of, of work uh, from the end of, no, from the start of last year. Yeah, there's definitely that relationship, isn't there, between comics and illustration where the the images kind of have to be, the images have to be doing some work, don't they? They can't just be decorative things. They've kind of got to be pulling their weight within the, the piece as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so important and often kind of the difference between something really working and something being like, oh, yeah, it's nice, it's fine. It's really feeling like the illustrator has has thought about communicating and not just kind of decorating the page. And obviously going back to teaching, that's it's the thing that I'm always kind of wanging on about to students. So it's only fair that I wang on about it to myself uh, when I'm trying to make work. And just to sort of tie the whole thing into a cohesive piece as well, you know, obviously in picture book illustration as well, the energy of the image and the work that it's doing on the page, again, is integral to the success of the piece as a whole. Yeah, and I, actually, now that you say that, it's all fallen into place. Because <laughs> now I'm realising that, in, yeah, in picture books, your text and image are obviously working in conjunction, but they're also working on different things. So my kind of general rule for myself is if the text is saying one thing, you don't have to repeat it in the image. You can push it into something more playful or more scary or more adventurous or whatever it is in the, in the picture. So, um yeah, I suppose I am always thinking about which part is doing what job, whether it's the text or, or the image. That's, um, yeah, fascinating. So you, um, uh, just to summarise, you enjoyed the experience of producing Walking Distance and you could possibly see yourself doing similar styled projects in the future? Yeah, I can definitely see something that maybe edges dangerously close to kind of graphic novel territory, but maybe plays more with having some long-form text in and, yeah, maybe doesn't stick too rigidly to, to kind of traditional comic format because because it's not something that I'm particularly fluent in but and it's also maybe not where I find I can I can make things most easily so yeah I think walking distance was definitely like a step in a direction um which I'm quite keen to continue in well also one of the beautiful things about comics is it's you know uh, creatively 
uh, a very broad church. So you know that balance between words and pictures can be can be struck any way you like. But you know uh, if they're working together and doing magical things, then it definitely counts as comics. Yeah, yeah, it is. That is that's completely true. And then finding finding the people that are willing to kind of say like, yeah, sure, no, that that can be a comic. Kind of which was luckily for me, uh, Avery Hill's response was um, generously like, yeah. Sure, we'll, we'll give that a bash. Um, and that is like a, a very, to go back, right back to the start, to back to kind of analogue books, that that thing of someone being like, yeah, sure, we believe in this thing is is very powerful. Great stuff. Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you too. Cheers. Thanks again to Lizzie for chatting to us and thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. This show is a whole fast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.